Good to see you all tonight. How many of you ever been ripped off before? You ever been ripped off? You ever failed to read the fine print on something? Uh, I don't know how many of you can date yourself. It's interesting as you have more birthdays, you're able to say, well, back in my day, a little bit more. Um, you know, I can say back in my day, I remember just having three or five TV channels, and it seemed like nothing was on. Now you get like 200 or 300 TV channels, and what's the case? There's still nothing on. Remember like back in the day when you actually had to get up and turn the channel on the TV? Remember back in those days we had to do that? Or when phones, you actually had to dial instead of pressing a button or just say who you wanted to call? How many of you remember back, this is going to include more of you, maybe back when you bought or signed a contract for your very first cell phone plan? Remember back in the day? I remember seeing, as a young married couple, Christina and I had been married maybe a year or two, there was this billboard, this cell phone plan from a company that's not even in existence anymore. For $20 a month, you, you can have your own cell phone. I thought this is the coolest thing in the world. And then we get the first bill in the mail, and you probably can imagine what happened. It was over $100. I'm like, well, what happened? They had these little things that, for those of you who've grown up with smartphones, you may not understand this language here. Roaming fees, <laughs> peak hours, non-peak hours, over-the-limit minutes. And, you know, it's interesting, I think you all know this, when you make an agreement, you'd be very wise to look at the fine print of that agreement. Be very wise to look at that over and over and over again. Jesus here in John chapter 14, I invite you to take your Bible and turn there tonight to John 14 will make three astounding statements about prayer. And believe it or not, Pastor Greg and I did not in any way have some grand scheme plan to speak on prayer on Wednesday. Uh, we did not dialogue about this at all. We've dialogued about other things of eternal significance like baseball, the Cubs, and Red Sox, but not about prayer really. So God, just in his sovereign providence and wisdom, has designed it in such a way that we're on this theme today, and this is where God has taken us here in Family Five on Wednesday. And here's these statements that Jesus will make, and you want to take your time as you work through them and understand good, solid Bible interpretation, good hermeneutics, or you're really going to misunderstand what Jesus is trying to get across to his original audience and what God wants us to understand from this passage. Let's look and see what Jesus is really aiming for here. What is Jesus really saying with these words? Again, if, if they're misunderstood, there could be profound implications of colossal error in your life theologically if you don't get this. So let's take a look here. Jesus is making a case, again, as I said the past few nights to his followers, it's better off that I go away. It's to your advantage that I leave, that I would go to the cross, that he would die, that he would rise again from the dead and ascend up into heaven. And he's demonstrating to them how they should live, how they should live together as, as servants of Christ, how they should serve one another, how they should love one another, how they shouldn't be out of sorts or bent out of shape about what's going on. They don't have to live a life of worry and fear and despair. They, they can be at peace in a troubled world. And he ties 
uh, troubled hearts that need to believe, not in better circumstances, but in a trustworthy Savior. Remember we looked at that last night. So when you get to chapter 14, you find here the, the person, then you find his power, then you find the subject of prayer, and then at the end, tomorrow night, we're going to look at the whole subject of peace. And that's all tied in with the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 14, God is going to get across here to his followers as to how he wants us to pray. Now, I think this has happened a time or two in your life, and I don't think I'm alone in confessing this, that there have been times where I have prayed, there have been many, many times where I have prayed, and I had no idea how to pray for a situation. I just was at a loss for words. And, and I remember many times in my life, kind of like you find this psalmist doing over and over again, just crying out for help in desperation from God and, and really not knowing how to pray. Have any of you ever found yourself in that situation before? Just, just crying out to God, I don't know how to pray about this situation. If you've ever wondered how to pray, what to pray for, and what should be the substance of your prayer life, the three verses we're going to look at in this passage you want to become very familiar with. And here's what we're going to look at tonight. Here's what we're going to dig out of this and what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And here's the big idea of tonight's message. Praying in line with God's purposes for God's glory unleashes God's power. A little bit longer than what it was last night, but it's very simple. Praying in line with God's purposes for God's glory unleashes God's power. So if you've wondered what it means to pray in Jesus' name, why do we pray that way? I wondered that when I first heard people praying for the first time. I, I didn't grow up in a family that prayed, so when I went to church, there was all kinds of different lingo that was completely foreign to me. This was one of them. How do we pray? And what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Is that some sort of formula we put at the end of our prayers? Is this some sort of tacit thing we just throw in at the end and hoping God hears us because we say that? What does it really mean to pray in the name of Christ? And these three verses, I believe, if you look at them, you submit to them, and you interpret them correctly, it's really going to recalibrate how you pray. It's really going to bring us back biblically how God wants us to pray and what the real goal is of our prayer should be. It's much more than just saying, I pray today, which is good and that's important. And it's much more than just saying, I had my devotions today. Or even just saying, I prayed for you today. That's good, that's great, that's important. But what's the end game of prayer? Why do we really pray? Two points of the message tonight. Let's look at the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. Look with me at Chapter 14, let's pick it up in verse 12. Why don't we go ahead and stand in reverence to God's word, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dive into the message. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 12, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in, 
if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we submit ourselves to you. We ask that you purify our hearts, cleanse our minds, help us to focus in on your glory, on this truth, and this precious, sufficient, authoritative, and errant book you've given to us. So, Father, we pray to that end tonight that the name of Christ would be magnified, that we would know you more, long for you more, trust you more, and have a greater desire for you because we have been here tonight. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for prayer, that you hear the cries of your children, and we praise you for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said together. First kind of prayer, you go ahead and be seated. The first kind of prayer that God loves to answer is this, is when you pray with sincere faith. When you pray with sincere faith. Now we're going to examine here in verse 12 one of the most abused verses that you find in Scripture. So what does this verse really mean? What do the words of Jesus mean here when you read this? Greater works than these will he do. You ever look at that and scratch your head? And wonder, what, what exactly is Jesus going for here? What is he aiming at? So does this mean, okay, he said I'm going to do greater works. Does this mean that since Jesus walked on water, I can run a marathon on water? Is that what it means? Is that where the text is going? Does this mean that since Jesus calmed the storm, that I can just change the weather at the snap of my finger? Does this mean that since Jesus fed several thousand people with just a few loaves of bread, I can feed millions of people with just a few loaves of bread? And I think all of you would agree that would all be heresy. Can we say that word together? Ready? Heresy. In fact, you look throughout church history, it wasn't until about 1900 years within the scope of church history, 1900 years after this was inspired, that anybody would have interpreted this passage any differently. You'd be hard-pressed to find anybody before the late 1800s who would have looked at this passage differently than what we're going to look at it tonight. So what is Jesus saying here? What exactly is Jesus saying? What, what is the Son of God trying to get across to his disciples? Well, he's making again the point, I keep saying this, that it's better off for you that I go away. And there's two words that are key to understanding this text. One is this, it's works, and the other one is greater. Understand the word works and understand the word greater. So Jesus' ministry has been nothing short than amazing. He has raised the dead, he has healed the sick, he has cured the blind, he has forgiven sins, he knew the hearts of all people, he spoke truth, he didn't have to say, thus says the Lord, Jesus as God could say, but I say unto you, Jesus gave new life to people and forgave people of their sins, but primarily Jesus' work was done in a very small geographical area. In fact, uh, Pastor Johnson here, we were reunited this week. I have not seen him and his wife since we were in Israel in 2011. And I saw him, I said, boy, the last time I saw you, we were in the Middle East. And, and I remember in the, in the trip to Israel, how many of you have had the, the, the blessing and the privilege of being able to go to Israel? Let me see your hands. A good, good amount of you have had that blessing. If you remember your trip, uh, the vast majority of that is spent in the Galilean region around the Sea of Galilee, because that's where Jesus did most of his ministry, mostly in the northern part of Israel there. Now, 
Let's think about this text. Now the disciples would be sent out. Remember John 20, verse 21? We looked at this a couple nights ago. Even as the Father sent me, even so I send you. Think right before the ascension of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the, what? Uttermost parts of the world. In the central point of John's gospel, we've gone over this again and again, is not that you would do miracles, because that's not commanded in, in the Bible, that you would do miracles. The central point of John's gospel in John 20, verse 31, is that you would believe. The disciples would not do greater works in the kind of works that they would do. The disciples would do greater works in the extent of the works that they would do. So what are we commanded to do as Christians? Are we commanded to raise the dead? Are we commanded to give sight to the blind? Are we commanded to heal people? Are we commanded to change the weather? No, we're not commanded to do all of that because in this room right here, some would say it's too hot, some would say it's too cool, some would wish it would rain today, some would wish it would be sunny the rest of the year. So we wouldn't even have uniformity with that. But here's what God commands us to do. To go and make disciples of all nations. That is the mandate that God has given to all of his people. It's the message of the gospel that God commands us to take, not just to a small region there in the Middle East where Jesus ministered, but to the uttermost parts of the world. I want you to listen to the words of D.A. Carson. I cannot really add to this. He explains this well. So let me, let me read these words to you. This is a very helpful explanation how these greater works would happen. And the point Jesus makes here, these greater works that are going to happen through his followers, they're going to happen because of one reason here. He goes to his father. Listen to the words here uh, that Carson writes. Jesus is about to return to his father. He's about to be glorified. And in the wake of his glorification, his followers will know and make known all that Jesus is and does. The signs and the works Jesus performed during his earthly ministry could not fully accomplish their true end until after Jesus had risen from the dead and had been exalted. Only at that point could they be seen for what they really were. And in order to get verse 12, you have to go back and connect it to verse 11. So do that with me if you would. Look again at verse 11, and that'll help you understand a little bit more clearly verse 12. What's the first word in verse 11? Believe. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else, here's the word again. You find it over and over again in John's gospel. Believe on account of the works them. Cells. Now take note that both believe and works are closely connected in these two verses throughout this passage. One theologian put it this way, the connection between verses 11 through 12 goes like this, believe on me on account of my works. Let my works, Jesus says, lead you to faith because whoever believes in me, notice verse 12, will also do works that lead people to believe in 
me. Let me show you throughout John's gospel how he talks about this. We're going to get into some heavy content here, but you're going to have to get into this in order to understand this passage. Look where else Jesus uses this word. Look at John 6, verse 35. Would you read this with me? Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look at John 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Look at John 11, verse 25. This was at the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And look at John 12, verse 46. Let's read this together. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. Let me reiterate a question that Jesus asked there at the tomb where Lazarus resurrected from the dead, where he said, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked this question. Do you believe this? And can I ask you this tonight? Do you believe this? Are you convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt tonight that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life and that it's been personalized in your life, that he is your resurrection, that he is your life, he is your Lord, he is your master, he is your savior? Now here's the good news. God did not lead you to Family Five on accident. God led you here because you have been prayed for. And God led you here because he is a sovereign God and he knew that you needed to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best news you'll ever hear, that your creator is a forgiving God and he is gracious and he is merciful. And whoever comes to him with faith in his son and what he did on the cross, he will not cast out. He will wash you clean. He will take your record and wash it under the blood of Christ and he'll exchange it for the perfect, holy, righteous record of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mike Hess, when he stands before God, I don't stand before him as you know, a pastor or, or somebody with you know, a particular degree or even as a, a national rep of a, of a fellowship of churches. I come before him in Christ. And I trust, friend, tonight, that's how you come before him. One more word I want you to see in this text. Look again at verse 12. It's the word whoever. These works are possible to whoever or everyone who believes. And let's be honest here. Our works, our life, our words, our actions, the trajectory of our lives, it points somewhere. It either points to darkness or it points to light. It either points to lies or it points to truth. It either points to ourselves and our glory or it points to Christ and his glory. We either point people to ourselves or we point people to Christ. And only one can give life. Not me. Only Christ. So the greater works here is the extent of Jesus' works, not the quality, not duplicating the quality of Jesus' works or even doing better works than Jesus. It's the extent of those works. So think of it this way. Let's just have good, faithful Bible interpretation here. This was primarily first given to the apostles, and the apostles would take the gospel to the known world. And they would go and plant churches and they would share the gospel and people would be redeemed and, and lives would be changed. And today, the apostolic year is over. It's done. It's not needed. And why is that? Because we have the completed canon of Scripture. 
We have the Word of God. And now, the works of Jesus are being extended in a greater way than ever. How is that? Because the gospel is going forth into the nations of the world. Now, there's a lot of work to do. There's 7.5 billion people roughly in this world. Most of them have never heard the name of Christ. But in an extensive way, through things like the printing press and radio and television and now today the internet, God is able to get, through us, the gospel out to the nations of the world. And multitudes of people groups around the world are now hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about this on a Sunday morning? In how many different languages the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed? How many of you here speak at least one other language besides English? I'm assuming you know English, but how many of you know at least one other language besides English? Okay. Another, how about two other languages besides English? Okay, so most of us, it would just be one, maybe two languages. Have you ever considered into how many languages the gospel is being shared on a weekly basis? And one of the reasons why it was good for Jesus to go to the Father, he would ascend to the Father, the Spirit would descend, and he would permanently indwell believers. And he would empower us and strengthen us and use us so we can go forth and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through the Spirit's power, the gospel will spread and multitudes will believe around the world. And why is that? All because of this. Look at the text. Because I go to the Father. You realize today, friends, you may think you're insignificant and you may think what you do doesn't matter. You may think nobody notices you and, and I don't have a title and I serve in obscurity and I don't really get accolades for what I do. But do you realize if you're a part of gospel work, what you do is incredibly significant and it matters and it's important? Do you realize that, that what you do, you do because you've been raised to walk in newness of life? You're a part of God's work in this age making disciples for the glory of God. To me, there is nothing greater in the world than that. Making disciples. So what are your greater works? You think, well, I don't live in a foreign land. I've never raised money to be a full-time missionary. I'm not in full-time vocational ministry, as we call it. So what are your greater works? Have you ever thought about that? And I would submit to you that greater works could be this. It happens as you Share the gospel with your children. Praise God, we have a lot of children here this week. Isn't that exciting? It's just, it's encouraging, it's exciting to hear, to see all these children be exposed to the good news of the gospel and how this camp has just constantly saturated these younger generations with the gospel of Christ. It happens as you share the gospel with children. It happens as you pray for children. It happens as you maybe help in a children's ministry. Maybe you're blessed in such a way that financially you can send somebody to camp and they could come here for free because you've paid for them. It happens as we love our children when they're good. And I don't know if this ever happens in your household, but sometimes my children are bad. Sometimes they manifest the sinfulness they inherited from me. But we love them just as God has loved us. What you do for Christ if you do it with pure motives and you do it for the glory of God, friends, that is a great work. 
And I don't know how many times where I've stepped down from the pulpit on Sundays, really discouraged and really down. You could even say depressed sometimes. Because I thought I really dropped the ball. And then I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the power of the gospel as people will come and they'll say, you know, that message really had a powerful impact in my life. And they'll talk about specific concrete ways that had an impact in their lives. And I heard somebody this week who came up to me and uh, said they were here at Family Five the last time I preached here, and their son professed faith in Christ that week. And I thought I kind of preached bad that week, and I probably did. But the Word of God never returns empty. Amen, friends? It's the power of the gospel that transforms. The greater work right now is the gospel doing a great work throughout the nations of the world. So it's not in the kind of miracles. It's in the extent of the work. Is that clear as day, friends, before we go on to number two? Amen. Let's look at number two now. What kind of prayer does God love to answer? It's simply this. Look at verses 13 through 14. Two points to tonight's message. It's when you pray in his name, when you pray in the name of Christ. Again, very important you get what Jesus is trying to get across here. Look what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So these verses provide the resources as to how this will happen. And this is prayer that's in the name of Christ. So Jesus, again, is connecting himself to the Father like he did in previous verses. So how many times... Have you faced that situation before, as I brought up in the beginning of my message, where, where you just face a problem in a situation and you ask, how am I going to pray for this? Or how am I supposed to pray for this situation? Understanding these verses will change what you pray for and how you pray for whatever it is God is laying on your heart. So this is the condition Jesus puts on our prayers. Here's what it is. That we pray in his name, for the Father's glory. That sounds easy, but let's unpack really what this means. It means this. First, it's assumed that you approach him as one of his followers, that you know him through faith in his Son, that you approach him, and, and he's appealing here to a specific group. That's his followers, those who've come to faith in Christ. But it's also this, that we pray according to his purposes, according to what God wants what his desires are. And our prayers also have an aim. Look at the passage again. The aim of these verses is this, that we aim for God's glory. You want what that name stands for. And what does the name of Christ stand for? What would be our desires? And it would be this. It's simply this. Consistent with his character. Each of our names represents something. For some, their names don't represent the greatest thing, but, but for many, your name represents high character, high integrity, a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ, faithfulness to your spouse, faithfulness to the local church, a love for the Word of God. And according to these verses, prayer is a means by which we ask God to do a work in our lives for His glory. Now, here's one of the most common phrases I've heard from people in pastoral ministry who attempt to justify sinful living. 
And they'll say this, you know, I know what I'm doing is contradicting the Bible, and I know you stand against this, and I know it's not right, but here's the kicker. Here's the slam dunk. I've prayed about it. I've prayed about it. I mean, I've literally heard this before, tragically. You know, Pastor, we really love each other as a couple, and, and, and we know it's not right, and we know the Bible contradicts this, but we've really prayed about this, so what we're going to do, we're going to live together outside of marriage because we've prayed about it. I've heard people tell me this. You know, Pastor, look, uh, I know what God says about assembling together as a church and that we should be doing that as Christians, and you teach on that over and over again, and that's what God wants. But we've prayed about it, and we're not going to go to any church anymore. We're not going to assemble with anyone. And here's where I've seen this the most, ironically enough. Christians who will not get along with each other, they'll not be at peace with each other. There'll be friction, animosity, consternation with one another. And they'll say things like this, like, you know, yeah, God wants me to live at peace. He wants me to seek reconciliation. But I've prayed about this. So I'm at peace, something we'll look at tomorrow night. I'm at peace with living in separation from that person. I'm okay with this because I've prayed about it. Now, here's the problem with all of it. There's a lot of loaded problems there. But here's the, name, here's the main one. Those things cannot line up with the name of Christ. You cannot line those things up with the name of Christ. You simply cannot do it. One helpful explanation is this. Jesus did not wish to be used as a magical charm like an Aladdin's lamp or a rabbit's foot, this is a guarantee, like the endorsement on a check and a limitation on the petition, for he would grant only such petitions as could be presented consistently with his character and his purpose. I talked about a couple times, I came to know Christ at the age of 17 in a small, uh, you know, a very rigid independent Baptist church, and um, I walked in there just, just soaking in the Bible, wanting to learn as much as I could, and I quickly found out, you know, this church was against so many things, we didn't even know what we were for, and, and they're just always constantly looking at all these externals in people's lives, but there was one real blessing I got from that church, actually a number of great blessings. One was this. They had a little small bookstore, and I picked up in that bookstore, saved maybe just a few months, R.A. Torrey's little book entitled How to Pray. How many of you are familiar with that book? Old book. R.A. Torrey was pastor at Moody Church many, many years ago, an evangelist that God used in a great way. And he has a helpful story that I believe illustrates this well. I want you to listen carefully to this. He had been preaching in Melbourne, Australia, and one day he walked up onto the platform to preach and somebody forcefully put a note into his hands. And because of the size of the crowd, he couldn't recognize who gave him that note. So he opened up the note and he read it before he preached. And the note said this, Mr. Tory, I am in great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of a church for 30 years. I've been Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and I've been an elder in that church for 20 years. 
And yet God does not answer my prayer and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? So Tori took the notes of the platform with him and he read it. He read it in front of everybody. I don't think the guy meant for it to be read in front of everybody, but that's what he did. And then because he had rightly detected the letter's tone, we could see that today in some emails perhaps. Some, some emails just have that edge, that tone to them from time to time. That's what this guy's letter had. He answered like this. This is what Mr. Tory said. It's perfectly easy to explain it. This man thinks, because he's been a consistent church member, you know the years here, church member 30 years, Sunday school superintendent 25 years, elder for 20 years, that God is somehow under obligation to answer his prayer. He's really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. And if we got what we deserve, every one of us would spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God, and we should go to God in our prayers, not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves, but on the ground of Jesus Christ's claims. At the close of the meeting, what do you think that gentleman did when he saw R.A. Tory? He came up to him, and he said this, looked him eyeball to eyeball, and he said, I am the man who wrote that note. I'm the man who wrote that note. Now, there's two ways he could have responded. He could have been mad at the messenger, who's simply just a messenger. That's all we are. Nothing more, nothing less. Or he could humble himself, confess his sin, and repent his sin, and learn from this, which is what God wants in our lives. And here's what the man said. You have hit the nail square on the head. Have you ever listened to a sermon and felt like that's what the sermon did to you? Like hit the nail right on your own head and you think like whoever's preaching has a drone following you around all week. Like what are they doing? And friend, all that is is the power of God working through the spirit of God as the word of God is proclaimed. That's what that is. And this is also what the man said. I did think that because I'd been a good church member for 30 years, Sunday school superintendent for 25 years and an elder in a church for 20 years, that God was under obligation to answer my prayers. Now, I see my mistake. I want you to read with me 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, and this will help recalibrate our prayer lives. Let's read together. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Here's our confidence. It's him. It's his will. That what I'm praying lines up with the name of Christ, with the character of Christ. Friends, this changes the main objective of our prayer life. So now our priority is not our comfort, our ease, and our plan for our lives. And I have to admittedly say this. Many times I've prayed not so much for the Lord's will to be done, but just that my life would go easy. Lord, help the rain to go away. May it go smoothly. May relationships have no issues or problems. It means the main objective is not how we think things should work out, but the main objective is this, the glory of God. We want God to be glorified. That's the kind of prayer 
that God loves to answer. So, God is glorified when people come to know Christ. So what do we do? We pray for the lost. Think of who you're praying for right now who's lost. Who are you witnessing to? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Can you name some people right now? This person I'm praying for. I'm burdened for this individual. They don't know Jesus. They need the Savior. And I'm lifting them up before God. God is glorified when we love one another. So we pray that our love would abound more and more. God is glorified when we demonstrate wisdom. So we pray for wisdom. God is glorified so when we live at peace with each other. So pray that relationships will be marked by peace and unity. Pray in your own life that God would give you grace not to retaliate against those who do you wrong, but that we would have the mind of Christ. God is glorified when we give up our own will, so pray that our will would be yielded to his will. If I could just encourage you to look at the examples of Jesus and look at the examples of Paul's prayers in the epistles. Look at those examples, and it's a far cry from what we often would observe in many prayers that we notice today because praying in line with God's purposes and God's glory, here's what it does. It unleashes God's power. Here's what you have in this passage, friends. You see in this passage that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, praise God, they are on our side in Christ. They're on our side in Christ. And right now, we have every resource we need to come before Him and to pray in a way that brings glory to His name. Let's pray to that end right now, shall we? Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Let's humbly come before Him. Father, we confess this is an opportunity we often take for granted. We confess that at times our prayer lives can grow cold and stale and distant. And that's not because of you, it's because of us. We confess that to you. And we confess, Father, that we often lean on our own understanding with prayer. And, and I pray that our understanding of prayer, Father, and, and what it means to pray in the name of Christ would be rigidly biblical, that it would come from your word. And, and Father, may we realize that you desire for us to draw close to you, but it must be on your terms, for your purposes, for your glory. May that be so in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, and all God's people said together, amen.